Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Duke Football Coverage Podcast, brought to you, as always, by Bull City Coordinators. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at our website at bullcitycoordinators.com. Our DMs on Twitter are open at DukeFBCoverage. This is the first of a slightly different format that I hope we keep doing in the future, where we are going to preview the ACC as a whole, as opposed to just doing a Duke-specific interview, although we will obviously continue to focus on all things Blue Devils football. And to do this, our next guest is the host of the Dan Siegel Show. His podcast covers all things ACC-related, not just football. He covers everything in the conference. He is a UVA guy and is wearing a UVA shirt right now. No one's perfect. We'll forgive him that sin. We'll just move on from it. He's a contributor to the Pipeline Network, and you can find him on Twitter at Dan Siegel Show. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about this. It's a Virginia baseball shirt, but um, yeah, I'm doing well. Very excited to talk ACC football for this year and um i think this conference will see some improvement that's the first thing i'll say all right well that's good to hear now before we get into all that uh i've been listening to your podcast for a while i've enjoyed it it's very informative but one thing that i noticed is you lost your old twitter account what happened with at acc content and has everybody found you at your new home so I'm trying to continue to grow my following on the new Dan Siegel show page. Obviously it's a long process, but um, I got locked out of my ACC content page. I'm not sure why the reasoning Twitter gave me was basically that like it has been compromised and they think they've, they saw some sort of like suspicious. I think the wording they used was suspicious activity, but Nobody like seems to have hacked me. Nobody got weird DMs or tweets from me. So it was very weird, but apparently my account was not verified or anything. So I couldn't get back in and Twitter service was just, it was a bunch of automated messages rather than human beings to talk to. So I just, after a week or so, I gave up and made a new account. Well, I think we have, uh, a potential Darknet Diaries podcast episode in the making. Then, <laughs> for those of you who listen to that podcast, it's very good. So we'll 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 reach out to the host. Maybe he'll have you on and continue to grow your brand uh, over there. Uh, why don't we just jump right into it, man? Uh, you're an ACC guy. You're very informative. You're an independent podcaster too. So let's uh, let's talk about what we can expect from the football, uh, uh, the ACC football teams going forward. And since I'm a Duke guy, you're a UVA guy. Why don't we start with the coastal division? What, what are the teams you're looking at at the in the coastal? Well, I think if you ask people around the country or around the conference, uh, I'd say Miami and Pitt are the two teams that are getting the most attention. And, if I were so right now, I haven't come out with my fi- like official standings prediction, but I would say those are probably the top two, but I don't think they're the runaway favorites. Now, Miami has Tyler Van Dyke, great quarterback, and they um, are recruiting very well. They're hitting the transfer portal really hard with their new coach, Mary Cristobal. Pitt, they, I mean, a lot of people like them, but I think they're a pretty significant downgrade from last year. They lost Kenny Pickett, their quarterback. Keaton Slovis is good, but he's nowhere near Kenny Pickett. 
I feel like this is Pitt is a normal Pitt team, a normal like team we've seen in the past go eight and four, where they're they're they have a very solid defense. They have a good, not great quarterback, some weapons, but they lost Jordan Addison to USC. So for that reason, I think teams in the middle of the pack, teams like Virginia, I don't want to say UNC, but maybe like a Virginia Tech. Like I think anybody, and even like the teams projected in the bottom of the pack, like Georgia Tech and Duke, I feel like they'll win a few games just because I don't see the Coastal Division as anybody really dominating it. I see a lot of parity in that division. So, um, yes, Pitt and Miami are the projected favorites, but I don't necessarily see it as just a runaway, like the winner goes six and two, seven and one. All right. You had a lot of stuff there that I'm going to follow up on bit by bit, but I guess it would be fair to say that this is another coastal chaos, wide open year that kind of anybody could run with it. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Yes. All right. Now, Miami and Pitt, I think, are on everybody's watch list for obvious reasons. And I want to segue into what you said about Miami. I think Mario Cristobal has a lot more pressure on him than people realize because that team that he's inheriting is pretty darn good and was trending in the right direction. I'm not going to say that it's a mistake to bring Cristobal in, but they were really close to going 10-2 and last year. They lost to Virginia by two. They lost to North Carolina by three, and they lost to Florida State by three. So just a couple of different plays, and you're looking at a team that finishes with 10 wins. If Cristobal struggles, what do you think the mood in Miami is going to be? I think Miami fans were – I mean, the thing about Miami fans, they are very, very pessimistic bunch. I've noticed that from my – polls that I did about like fan optimism and satisfaction rating towards the overall performance of the athletic department, like Miami fans, they expect the team to basically win 10 plus games every single year. And Manny Diaz was not doing that. And they think that Cristobal will be the guy that will come in and basically just turn the tide immediately. And with the portal, he's basically done that. I mean, they're recruiting so much better freshman and transfer portal wise. But the thing is, there's no guaranteeing that the on-field results happen. And he's done well in Oregon. That's the Pac-12. That's very different than down south and in the ACC. So we'll have to see. But honestly, it was a very I don't think they approached the situation right. The Miami Athletic Department. But in the end, they I think they ended up getting what they wanted and they got the right thing. So I think in the end, it was good for them, but the process was very bad and it could have turned out disastrous. So other than Miami, who's the coach, uh, other than potentially Cristobal, who is the coach with the most pressure on him in the Coastal? Well, I mean, we have a lot of new coaches. We have... Tony Elliott from Virginia, Brent Pry from Virginia Tech, Elko from Duke. So I wouldn't say those have a lot of pressure because those are year one coaches. I would say it's got to be Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. Um, He's had three years and total of nine wins, three wins each season. And he's just 
he's brought a lot of excitement and like rah-rah into the Georgia Tech program. But eventually the fans realized, well, all this hype, all this social media stuff, not a lot of on-field performance. So what Jeff Collins has done to his credit this offseason, he fired a lot of his coaching staff that were there for recruiting, hired a lot of guys that are strictly just on-field success kind of resumes. And he said, I think the quote he said was less, less, I'm not sure what the quote was, but he had some sort of like buzzword that he's basically explained to the guys that this year it's going to be all about on field and winning games. And I think they have a really, really difficult schedule, but if they are able to win six games, I think with that schedule, then maybe he could salvage something, even five games, like a good five and seven where they're like close a couple times. They competed with like Ole Miss and UCF rather than getting trenched by like 28 points. I think that's how he could save his job, but it's, it's not going well for him. Right. And to your point, they brought in, I think, six new coaches, including Chris Winky to coach the quarterbacks, uh, among other folks that they brought in. But to your point about their schedule, starting at Clemson, third game of the season, Ole Miss, they got UCF, Pitt, and we can talk about Pitt here in a second, but Florida State, which may be trending up, and then you close the season with Georgia. That doesn't even take into account the other coastal foes that you play every year. I mean, that's a recipe for a coach with nine wins coming into year four, uh, four to get told, thanks, uh, it's time for us to move on, don't you think? Yes, and I actually – I had a Georgia Tech guy, Bryce Kuhn, who works for the 24-7 Network on my own podcast, and he said that he thinks Jeff Collins is a little bit more leeway than people around the country would think. And the only reason why is because Georgia Tech, A, is a really difficult school to win at, and B – let's say they were to fire him after the season. Well, a that's a lot of money you're giving up. And it's also, it's not like you're going to get the hottest commodity in the market. Like you're going to get a group of five guy probably, but not like the group of five guy, like, like what Florida was able to get this year. Like you're going to get like a, basically what Jeff Collins was like an under the radar guy from temple who doesn't have a super strong resume, but maybe has a little bit of potential. Right. I remember listening to that interview and I think the money goes a long way and it's going to be hard maybe for them to get a guy that they want. But I think if they monitor it well and maybe make a change early, they can get out ahead of everybody. So if tech, if Georgia Tech is struggling early, it wouldn't surprise me maybe if they think, all right, we're going to make a change now and try to bring in somebody sooner by getting to the front of the line on the coaching staff needs. I mean, we'll see. I don't think you're going to have as many good jobs open up this coming season as opened up last season where it was just kind of nuts. So that's possible. But another guy who may have some pressure on him, you mentioned this uh, about Pitt being kind of an average Pitt team, right, for this season with what's happened to them through the portal we don't need to get into that. We don't have enough time to cover all the ins and outs of them losing their wide receiver, but it would not surprise me if Pitt fans get upset, if it's perceived that Pitt falls backwards some this year 
and goes back to more of their kind of standard seven to eight win kind of pit season. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't say the average pit team because Pitt has had a lot of six and seven win seasons. I think they could go eight and four. I think that would be like my projected win total for them, but maybe like the the average good pit team, not like. See, I don't necessarily see the pit program as, oh, look at this gigantic step forward. They're here to stay as ACC contenders every year. I see them as, look, Narduzzi is very much cemented in his job. He's done a great, he's done great work there, but I'm not sure that the season was the rule. I'm, I'm, I think it was just Kenny Pickett having a Heisman like season more the exception. Yeah, and looking at what Narduzzi's done, and I think he's a very good coach, and I'm not advocating that he should be on the hot seat. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me if some frustration started to build. If you look at his time there, he's 53 and 37, 8 and 5, 8 and 5, 5 and 7, 7 and 7, 8 and 5, 6 and 5, and last year 11 and 3. This does seem like your classic fall back to earth year, but they're starting at West Virginia, then they play Tennessee. Western Michigan, Rhode Island, and they've got Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, Louisville, North Carolina, Syracuse, Virginia, Duke, and Miami. There's a lot of winnable games in there for them, but the question is going to be how hot can they start to determine, I think, how far they go. So, I mean, it could be be kind of a rough season up in Pitt, and I agree with you. I don't think that Pitt is ACC contender every year, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, uh, I think the biggest key will be the debt – first two games, West Virginia and Tennessee, both winnable games, both very losable games, especially Tennessee is a great team. We know that West Virginia, I think the spreads like six points in favor of Pitt, but it's a rivalry game. So anything could really happen. It's probably going to be a hard nosed, low scoring classic Pitt, West Virginia backyard brawl game. At least that's how I envision it. That's how I fantasize about it, but I'm not sure. It's kind of weird to be talking about spreads in June, but we'll (laughs) – We'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. Any other team in the Coastal that might jump up and surprise us? Because I, before I leave, I do want to mention, I, I haven't said this yet, but don't you kind of feel like this could be, if it's another year that we've seen previously, another year the same for North Carolina, that this might be the end of Mac being back? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not really, especially with Sam Howell gone, I feel like, Sam Howell was obviously not the guy we expected he would be after the first two years. But the fact of the matter is he bailed them out for a lot of their problems they had, especially in year three with his ability on the ground to pick up yards. And now they have a a new quarterback. It will be uh, Drake May or Jacoby Criswell. Both are solid guys with good arms and could make things happen. But if their wide receivers don't, increase improve drastically which they do have josh downs but aside from him if their defense doesn't improve drastically which they did hire a new coordinator gene chisick but i'm not i don't think that turns things around in one season similar to like virginia who had a abysmal defense last year hired a great coordinator but i don't think things will turn around drastically in one season that's that's how i'm feeling north carolina i'm feeling like seven and five ish don't you kind of feel like what happened with Sam Howell was similar to what we saw towards the end of the Cutcliffe era with Daniel Jones, a quarterback elevating the team, frustration setting in with a fan base, and just not doing maybe enough with the talent that's there? 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's a that's a pretty good analogy. The only difference is Daniel Jones was, what, a top five, top six pick, and Sam Howell went to the fifth or sixth round. But aside from that, I mean, that's definitely true. The NFL scouts were able to see past it more in Duke's situation than UNC's situation, but that's that's a decent comparison right there. I like that. Well, who who from the coastal might surprise might surprise us this year? Who might jump up and make that run and either get to the championship game or at least be in the mix most of the season? I think Virginia is the team that's very high variance. They could do very well. They could do very poorly. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the country, in my opinion, in Brennan Armstrong. The only thing is we don't know what to expect from their defense. We don't know what to expect from their offensive line. And we don't know what to expect from their coach, Tony Elliott, who's a first-time head coach. He came from the offensive coordinator as at Clemson. So there's just a lot of question marks, but they have the most important position on the field set. So I think that's a team I could easily see them going like nine and three, 10 and two. I could easily see them going like four and eight. It's the most difficult team to predict. All right. It could be a great season for you or one where you pull out all your hair if you're a exactly. UVA, exactly. UVA guy. Every uh, other team I have like a kind of a temperature check on them. UVA, I do not. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel the same way about the the Blue Devils just because although they're thin from a body count perspective, every guy I've talked to who's associated with that program is really buying in to what they are doing down there and they seem very excited and you know this and everybody knows this football in any sport is just a lot of times about feeling that confidence having that strong sense that we can do it and believing in yourself maybe this is a year where they lose a lot of games but you look at them and you say man this team is really building something or they could just shock everybody. They got a good offensive coordinator. They've got a good staff. I, it, I don't think that they could necessarily win eight to nine games, but it would not surprise me if they upset a couple of teams close and maybe got back to a bowl at a six, maybe seven win mark. Totally. I, I think they got a home run higher or as close to home run as you're going to get with Elko. And I think definitely like Duke – the culture change is number one. Whenever you're taking over a program, whenever you're taking over a severely struggling program, the first thing you got to focus on is the culture. Changing the mentality from, oh, this is who we are, whatever, being okay with going winless in the conference to, look, we believe we could win some games and be a force in the ACC and be somebody that's not just a pushover. So, that's definitely the first thing I think Elko will focus on the culture. And I, I'm, I'm with you. Like I'm probably not going to have them winning like eight, nine games in year one, but I think they could definitely get back to maybe like, be, I don't know, the Daniel Jones years where they went like six, seven games. I think, didn't they win eight games one year? Yeah, they did. I think they finished eight and five as last year. Yeah. So those maybe like back to like the success of those years, Duke will always be a basketball school. Like they're, they're limited in terms of football. I, I kind of feel similarly about Virginia too, but definitely like Elko is a great hire. He's doing good things based on what I've been hearing. Obviously I haven't seen anything on the field, but yeah. 
Yeah. And, and the hard part, I think, with anybody, and I've listened to a lot of interviews with you guys in the ACC weekly podcast with my uh, my guys over there who, who run that one. Uh, everybody who's come on who has talked about Duke on both of those podcasts, and I'll just go ahead and say it now, I think we're all looking at the same thing. It, it's not so much that Duke lost a lot of games last year. It's And I chronicled this on my website repeatedly over there the way that they lost them, just getting blown out. And I don't mean to say this to disrespect any of the players on that team from last year, because I know how hard they work and I know how much time they put into it. That was one of the worst teams that I have seen in all the years. And I'm 40 that I've been watching Duke. Yeah. And I, I mean, they just got beaten badly every week. So it's hard for any of us to sit around and say, Oh yeah, they're gonna turn it around next year. They got yeah. a new guy. It's automatic. Just put us in a bowl game. It's just hard to get people to buy into that because of the way that they kept getting beat last year. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're gonna like this comparison, but I'm a student at UMass and we were playing non-ACC teams. You're we playing teams like Toledo and Eastern Michigan and stuff. And it was it was the exact same thing. So I understand that that's the way I could understand with you. Like it's not just losing, not just going one and 11 for us, but losing horribly every single time and being the laughing stock. I mean, you guys more of the conference, also the entire country, but I, it, a new coach comes in, even if you don't win so many games, if just competitive is the next step and being able to be excited on Saturdays, like, Oh, our team plays rather than oh, our team plays. Like it's a big difference. Yeah, and you got Ben Albert, former defensive line coach, co-defensive yeah, coordinator at Duke. He is a defensive line whisperer, so expect some improvement there. He really knows his stuff. And you guys got a long snapper who's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we could talk about the portal later, but it's early in the morning, and I don't have enough alcohol to power myself <laughs> through that. I don't, I don't drink till noon. I don't care where I am, or that's that's my rule. So I, I don't want to get into the portal right now. Um, shout out to the guys who came on the podcast uh, and left, though. Uh, Gunner, rooting for you. Jake, rooting for you. Uh, but thank you guys again for coming on and for and uh, Ryan Wolitzer for helping set those up. Let's switch to the Atlantic, man, because that's that's going to be crazy. I was looking at that to get ready, and and you know I got two kids and Duke's in the coastal, so I don't pay too much attention to the Atlantic for football season. But man. That could be just a heavyweight bout every single week. Yep. Yep. That's a division that it's going to be similar to the Coastal in terms of I don't think there's a runaway. Like Vegas thinks Clemson's a runaway. I'm not bought into that. I could say Clemson's probably the best team, but I don't think they're a runaway best team. But I think the Atlantic is significantly better than the Coastal division. I think just from the – Top of the pack to the middle of the pack, everybody has some kind of upside, especially you look at the top of the pack, which for me is three teams. It's Clemson, Wake Forest, NC State, in no particular order. And all those teams, I mean, Clemson's just a dominant everywhere else and quarterback they need to work on. Wake and NC State are just well-balanced teams with pretty great quarterbacks in Sam Hartman and Devin Leary. They're teams without a lot of holes. I mean, wake maybe the defensive line a little bit, but those are teams that I think are competing for 
Atlantic Division title. But the only difference is this year, I think Boston College, they'll have Phil Dracovic healthy. They could steal some games. Florida State, they could steal some games. Louisville is a team that a lot of people think is under the radar. Malik Cunningham is great. He, I mean, people underestimate what he could do and the impact he has on his team. This year's offensive line will be really, really good. So even like even Syracuse, for like considering they're the worst team in the division, there's a lot of like divisions around power five that have worse teams than Syracuse. So I think that's just honestly one of the better divisions in power five football. And not maybe not a lot of people outside the ACC would believe me, but just from top to middle to bottom, a lot of great teams there. I think you're right about that. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Now, those of you who follow me on Twitter, you know, my youngest cousin is going to NC state this year. So I hate to say this, but, as a guy who's followed the ACC for a long time, doesn't this just seem like a classic NC State collapse season? It's like everything is going in their favor. They've got they've got depth at key positions. The fan base actually believes in them, which is almost never, ever – it almost never happens. They're like – the state fan base at this – they hold two diametrically opposed views at the same time oh, all the time, which great. is – we should win at least 10 games a year, but we're going to lose every game. Right. Like, but this year they think, all right, it's, it's, it's lined up. We got a senior laden team. We're taking advantage of the super senior years. Boom. It's going to happen. Doesn't this just scream NC state collapse? Yeah. I, because here's the thing, like some people around the country are, are projecting them like top five, top seven teams in the country. Like I, I don't view them as that. I view them more as like 10 to 15 range to start the year. And anything short of an Atlantic title, they'll be disappointed. And I honestly, like, they're, they're getting hyped up by a lot of people in the national media. Honestly, NC State fans might be more skeptical. Like, they're not going to show it because they want the attention. They want, which is very valid. Like, it, when your team receives national media attention, you want that. But I feel like there's a little bit of skepticism just because that's kind of what NC state has done so many years past throughout their athletic department, like the basketball too. It's like, they're almost there. They could be there, but they can't finish the deal. Yeah. I just, I don't know what to expect from state this season. And I, for that reason, I'm not bought into the hype and I've heard a lot of guys talk about all the things they've got going for them, but it just, to me, just feels like this could really be a an everything falls apart season for them. And I, I don't know why necessarily I feel that way, but, I mean, their schedule, I mean, the East Carolina game I think is going to be tough because that's got uh, – that's a grow, that's a building program and they're headed in the right direction. Plug for an upcoming interview with someone who may be associated with that program. But then they play Charleston Southern. Um, you know, I, I don't know what to expect from Texas Tech next season. Um, UConn, you know, another winnable game. But then they hit Clemson, Florida State. And your point, Syracuse is not a bad team at 5-7 and seven last year. Then they've got the Hokies, Wake, Boston College could steal, like you said, steal some games, Louisville, and then North Carolina. So, I I don't, I just don't know what to expect from those guys. 
Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of high, like, I don't want to say variance. I think that like at worst case scenario, they they still could salvage, like, even if things don't go their way in eight and four season, but like, I can that ECU game scares me. I think it scares a lot of folks in the North Carolina state fandom base. Like East Carolina, it would not be the first time hosting a power five team and winning a game from the state of North Carolina. And I mean, we, we saw them beat, I think both NC state and they beat North Carolina pretty badly in the last five, six years. So that's one that scares me, but I'll tell you a secret. The team that won the ACC last year, Pitt, they lost to Western Michigan and they still turned around their season and won the ACC. So I could, I could see that happening again. Like NC state loses the first game. They're all in one. Everybody counts them out and they all of a sudden just win, win, win. And Oh, by the time it's week 10, we realize they only have one loss in the season and they're maybe that loss was more of a fluke, but ECU that's, that's very difficult because that's going to be their Super Bowl, and they're not a pushover. What about Wake Forest? What should we expect from Wake uh, from Wake this season? Yeah, I think Clawson has built a pretty consistent program over there. Um, I would probably put them third in the division, but I do see them with a chance to potentially win it. And the reason being is, despite maybe the defensive issues, they have once again a really explosive offense, especially with their passing game, especially with Sam Hartman, who's a very good quarterback. Sometimes you look at him and like the, he doesn't pass the eye test as like a very elite quarterback, but you look at the numbers, the numbers are there. He's very good. And um, they lose Jaquari Roberson. They get back AT Perry. He's a great wide receiver. They have a pretty deep room. I think wake, if I were to project them now, I'd say, I think their preseason win total is eight and a half. And I think that's pretty good. Like, Eight to nine wins is the range I'm projecting them at. And then last, you mentioned in no particular order, your top three teams were Clemson, Wake, and State. We've talked about everybody in detail, I think, except the Tigers. What should we expect from them this season? I mean, they start with Georgia Tech, Furman, and La Tech, so they've got a shot to come out 3-0, and and then they hit Wake and State back-to-back. I think, uh, you know, if they – at least split those, you've got to think they've got a good shot at things, but what should we be expecting from them? I think at their absolute best, they could realistically make the playoffs go 12 and now. I think first off their quarterback situation needs to be figured out. And we presume DJU will be the starter, but those first three weeks will be the test for him because Dabo sweetie, he's pulled the plug before he could totally do it again. Cade Klubnik, five-star freshman, could totally take over and he could be good. So the question was going to be totally their quarterback play. We've seen them. They went, they won 10 games last year with abysmal quarterback play. So I don't see their floor being any lower than nine, 10 games. Thing about Clemson that makes me hesitate about them being a runaway favorite in the conference. Even if they do figure out their quarterback scenario and you think like mediocre to above average quarterback play this year, or even good quarterback play. They lost both coordinators and both of them were there for a long time. So there's some sort of instability in the program. That's why I'm picking them more as like a 10 and two team. But I think on paper, they're probably the best in the Atlantic, just not to the extent that Vegas projects them at. 
and that Notre Dame game they have on November five at seven thirty p.m. ought to be something to watch. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about we've kind of covered both divisions. We've talked a little bit about coaching changes. Uh, here is what I think is a certainty as far as the hottest seat in the conference right now has got to be at Georgia Tech. You're also looking at North Carolina, which we talked about. Other than those two, what or, – or excuse me. Other than those two, which programs do you think might make a coaching change this season? So I think Louisville is the first one I'd point at. I think with the whole Scott Satterfield potentially going to South Carolina a couple off seasons ago, I'm not sure the fan base, I'm not sure the Louisville program will fully be able to make a recovery from that unless they end up winning eight plus games this year and show signs of, okay, we're not just mediocre. We're actually like a going places. So Scott Satterfield, number one, I don't know if they pull the plug if he goes, has a mediocre season again, but if things go downhill a little bit, I think there's been some in-game coaching management issues that definitely they could have won more games than they have. They've lost a lot of close games. So Scott Satterfield, number one, Norvell too, Mike Norvell from Florida state. They're projecting things to go a little bit better, but like I said, there's a lot of teams in the Atlantic and teams have to lose games in addition to winning them. So like for every win, there has to be a loss. We can't just say everybody's going to have improvements. Somebody has to not. And if Florida State is a team that goes five and seven again, I wouldn't be surprised to see Florida State look at other directions. Now, since the early 2010s when they've been dominant, there's definitely like a lot of instability in the Florida State program and keep changing your coach every three years. That's not a great way to stabilize things, but – if you're not getting it done, there's high expectations in Florida State. I mean, we just saw on the baseball side of things, they just fired their coach after three years, and they made the tournament each three every three years. There's high expectations in the Florida State Athletic Department. So Mike Norvell has another five, six, one season. Would not be surprised. You had the same next two hot seats that I had, especially if FSU has another bad year. I think everybody's going to get impatient. I'm trying to look at not that I'm rooting for anybody to lose their job, but part of doing season previews is kind of thinking about what might happen. You know, to your point about Scott Satterfield, since he's been there, they were eight and five, four and seven COVID year, you know, okay. Six and seven last year, looking kind of mediocre, 18 and 19 overall, 12 and 13 in conference. I mean, if they're hovering around seven wins, I don't know if that's enough to keep him around. But as far as dark horse, you know, coaching changes, I'm trying to think. Dino Babers has not won a whole lot of games at Syracuse, but I think he's doing well overall with that program. I think he's probably safe next year unless they only win like one game. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the thing about the Syracuse, I think the athletic department is content with him being mediocre. And winning, like, if you were to win six games this year, I think they'd be fine with that. The fan base is very fed up. They are upset that the athletic department is okay with mediocrity. And I understand that, but Syracuse is also a hard place to win at. There's not a lot of recruits in upstate New York. And, you know, the the investments for the school going to basketball, 
So uh, I think unless things are really bad, like they have a season similar, like what Duke had last year, where they're just blown out in every game. If they're competitive again, and they're a respectively bad kind of football program, that's honestly what it seems Syracuse is okay with. Right. And I'm just going through kind of everywhere else. I think barring a total disaster with Boston college, I think the coaching staff there probably doesn't have anything to worry about. So yeah. Jeff Halfley, there was a lot of excitement. Now Boston college fans are starting to be skeptical. Like maybe he's just going to keep us at mediocrity and not take that step to win eight, nine games. But in terms of him getting fired, I highly doubt it. Right. I, I think you're right about that. So I think we kind of know where to look if if we're thinking about coaching changes. It's Georgia Tech, UNC, Louisville, and FSU. Those would be the four that you would be looking at that if there were a change, it wouldn't necessarily surprise you. Is that fair? That's fair. And I don't think UNC would like fire Mac Brown. It would be more like asking him to retire or something like that. But uh, I can't remember how – Duke and Cutcliffe worded it, but I think it would be something like that. Something like that, exactly. Yeah. We parted ways or something. Right. Another word for that's a divorce, but anyway. (laughs) All right. Well, we talked about this briefly with Jordan Addison leaving Pitt, and you've talked about this a little bit. A lot of other guys have talked about this a little bit. There's kind of two reads on why he left. One is the NIL deal. The other is – Kenny Pickett's gone. He has friends at USC. His offensive coordinator went to Nebraska, I think. There's, you know, maybe reasons that he just looks around and says, I want to go somewhere else. But NIL became the dominant narrative. What do you think we might see from schools' conferences to try to put some, make some response to this situation if it's determined that it's justified to do so? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what the NCAA, which first off, the NCAA is weakening because of this, and I'm not sure whether in 10 years that's really going to be a, a thing. But I think for one to two years, we're going to see absolute chaos. Next offseason especially, just teams poaching players in the portal. And it's difficult for like mediocre Power 5 teams versus Power 5 teams with a lot of money because if you develop a guy for three years and then – the team with a lot of money could just steal him and you did all the work, but then their breakout season will be in the hands of a school with a lot of money like that. That's going to be very difficult to, for a college football fan, for a diehard college football fan to think about. But I think, yeah, next off season, absolute chaos. I think at some point in the near future, they'll put some guidelines on it, but here's the thing. Cheating in college football has happened forever. It's just the only difference between now and then is the transfer portal and the fact that the cheating is much more publicized because it's like almost to a certain extent legal. But things like this have happened for so long. It's just the fact that people know about it. That That's my take on things. And two thoughts. It's hard to blame a, a, a young adult. We're leaving a school to go get a couple of million dollars through an NIL deal because, you know, I've talked to a lot of former players and they all have told me you have very little guaranteed if you're playing football. You have a very, very short shelf life. And it's hard for me to really 
be negative towards a young guy for going and trying to better his situation. So th- I think that's one thing we got to keep in mind. But to your point about the ACC being or the NCAA being weak, I kind of think it's going to fall down to individual conferences to come up with internal rules, regulations to deal with this. Yeah. And it would not surprise me if you start seeing the conferences just work this out on their own independent of the NCAA. Because, I mean, that thing is falling apart. It's not like it used to be where it had real strict oversight. It just it's not the same governing body that we all remember from, you know, people who are my age from when we were a little bit younger. And you also look at, too, Duke basketball has a GM now to help with NIL deals. So I I think we're going to see stuff like that happen. Yeah, first off, very good job by Duke basketball with that. But second off, I I look at the conferences kind of being on their own. And I look at the SEC and I'm afraid, you know, they already took Texas and Oklahoma. Like they're just going to be as right as we know it right now, there's there's like levels of college football. There's the power five, the group of five, the FCS, division two, et cetera. I think the SEC will be almost on its own level above everybody else just because of the way things are trending and the ACC big 10 and PAC 12 have a super, super weak Alliance to try to combat that. It's really not doing anything. So that when I hear that the NCAA is weakening and eventually just going to be nothing and that the conference conferences are going to be on their own. That's my biggest concern is the SEC just becoming even more like right now they're the best conference, but they're not like, they're just like the regular best conference in college football. I think they're going to be even more dominant and just take over the entire thing. Yeah, that's going to be real interesting Interesting to see how that plays out. The, the only thing that would not surprise me is if some teams, although it's hard to replace the money, just get upset. Texas A&M, I'm looking in your direction with the fact that Texas is now going to be in the SEC, which I think A&M was – looking for that not to be the case when they left. So that's something that could have some ripple effects, but also it's like a, it's like I'm stuck in a time loop here. When I, when I saw the talk about the ACC realigning itself a little bit, it's almost like in some respect, we may see a reversion to small regional conferences, right? Yeah. And I think, in terms of the time loop, like where we'd be getting back some of the schools that we had in the past. So like, I'm not sure that's like necessarily like people talk about adding like West Virginia and Maryland and South Carolina, like those schools, the schools that are like in big conferences, but are not regarded too highly, like in those conferences, I'm not, that doesn't like excite me that much. Like I would have wanted to go out and grab Cincinnati. That's what I wish would happen or UCF, like those are the, the up and coming schools that the sky is the limit in terms of the budgeting for football and the ACC, it'll, it, it might just become like, I don't know, but it'll definitely always be below the SEC. And I, I'm not sure what they could exactly do to, to combat what's going on. I think it's, they just got to hope that the SEC stops at, what are they at 16 now? They just got to hope they stop there and let every conference exist, let the college football playoff still 
having that representative from the ACC rather than, you know, it eventually becoming, well, the SEC champion is almost as important as the NCAA champion because with the playoffs expanding, it's almost like the SEC championship is just going to be replayed in the college football playoffs every year because like four or five teams from the SEC will probably be in with expanded playoffs. So it's just, it's very frustrating. Yeah, and it's kind of boring as a fan to watch. Like, oh, hey, great. We're seeing Alabama and Georgia play again. Yay. <laughs> I, just, I mean, yeah. if you want to do auto bids and have, you know, East uh, Northern Illinois get killed by Alabama in the 16-1 to 1 game by, like, 90 points, if that floats your boat, sure. But I just – it doesn't make sense to me. The no, I, I agree with you on that. You know, the good thing, though, about the ACC realigning itself will be teams like Duke who have lost attendance because they're not playing NC State every year, that can fix that some, right? But, you know, trying to think about how the ACC is going to stay relevant, I agree with you. I don't think adding Maryland back is really going to add a whole lot. I mean, it's not like Maryland's really lighting it up uh, at the moment. Or Virginia the same way. Yeah, I mean – and what are you going to get from what are you going to get from bringing in South Carolina? I mean, I'm from South Carolina. I grew up Clemson and and USC were the two teams. But I mean, let's be honest. It's not like, except for when Spurrier was there, it's not like USC has really been particularly great. I mean, I, I don't see them coming in to the ACC and winning ten games a year. Yeah, it's it's just going to be like very. It's just adding quantity, not quality. That's really what it is. They're the same thing as a lot of the other schools that are here. And if you're going to add a team, you want to kind of maybe go somewhere where it's going to help your recruiting and not be like Nebraska and not be able to really recruit Texas because you're not going to play any Texas schools now that you're in the Big Ten, right? Yeah, very true. I didn't think about that, yeah. The teams, they've never recovered from that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. All right. Well, uh, with that bleak look at the future of the ACC, potentially, what else do you want to talk about? If if you listen, you know, I give everybody an open mic. Uh, the floor is yours. What do you want to what do you want to discuss? Um, I mean, I just want to talk about the fact that the ACC quarterbacks just as a whole, definitely the best in college football. Um, you know, there's. From Brennan Armstrong, Sam Hartman, Devin Leary, Tyler Van Dyke, Phil Dracovic, Keaton Slovis. Like, there's just so many that I think last year might have been the numbers might have been inflated by just poor defenses in the conference as a whole, maybe outside of like the Clemsons. But the quarterbacks in the ACC are just so good. It, it could be a very entertaining product because of that. And I think a lot of them could be drafted and talked about day one, day two potentially day three, like it's the conference. I'm not saying it's the best conference in college football at all, nor close to that, but just purely from a quarterback perspective, I think it's the best. And I don't think there's a question. And you didn't even get into Duke's quarterbacks yet. I mean, you know, uh, when, when you ran off that list of great quarterbacks. So, I mean, that should tell you that you don't even have to mention them, just how deep the ACC is at the quarterback position. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I could go through like basically. I mean, the funny thing is the teams that that's projected to win the conference is probably like not even a top ten quarterback right now with Uyunglele, but for the most part, I mean, 
you look at you talk about Duke, like even look at Syracuse, like they're in terms of the the bodies in their quarterback room right now, not great, but they just got the quarterback coach, Jason Beck from Virginia. He's one of the best quarterback coaches in the country. He's going to fix things up. And you look at Virginia, like the last, basically the entire era, because he was the quarterback coach for the entire Bronco Mendenhall era. They were quarterback was never the issue. It was always anything else. So I think you look at Syracuse like that could be, potentially fixed with Jason Beck there. That's a very underrated storyline. I feel like around the conference that basically nobody's talked about. Well, I don't think UVA is going to see any passes to offensive linemen. This oh season. my God. Yeah. don't. <laughs> that was the thing about the UVA Virginia tech rivalry is UVA always loses, but they don't always get destroyed. They don't always lose by like 20 points. Like it was earlier in that big streak. It's just they always find a way to lose in heartbreaking fashion when the teams are pretty evenly matched, and that just makes it more frustrating than anything. It's not like Georgia-Georgia Tech, where Georgia Tech's going to lose by 40 points every year because they're not a great program, and Georgia's one of the best programs in the country. That's, for me, less frustrating than what happens with UVA and Tech. Yeah, um, we could go back to the 2019 jump pass at Duke that I think pretty much marked the end of the Cutcliffe era. But, hey, again, it's still not noon, and I don't have any alcohol. So I have relived that way too many times. And I'm considering this, though, actually. I don't know if people would be interested in it. So if we get some feedback on Twitter about this or DMs, I'm thinking about editing together all the discussion that I've had about the – way that the 2015 Halloween Miami game ended. Oh my God. And so so what, I mean, what do you think? Would that be an interesting like mock foe 30 for 30? Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'll give you my thoughts on that. Like there were probably 10 to 12 times where the play should have been blown dead or there should have been a flag. And I have no idea why they let that happen. <sighs> it is hard for me to even discuss it as many times as I have relived that still it's my first thought is when when someone brings it up is I just groan and and it, it takes me forever to put into words everything that went wrong on that play yeah, And then the fact that they let Miami get a win that they shouldn't have gotten. I mean... <laughs> anyway. Okay. Are, are, you, are you more upset about the fact that they gave up the play or the fact of the officiating? Well, the officiating, because if you go back and look at that last lateral, the, the ref is standing right there looking at, and I don't remember the name of the player who tackled Miami's guy who, who passed it, but he made the play and tackled him, and his knee is down, and that's it, and that's it. He and, made the play like six times. Right. No, and the thing that, that, that is hard to kind of go back and think about that was when they squibbed it, I didn't like it. My thought was either just kick it out of bounds give them the ball, the 35, who cares, or just kick it deep into the end zone and do a touchback. Like those were my two thoughts. And even with that, the fact that the play kept going and kept going, the longer it goes on, it's going to be harder to stop 
But uh, it, the chances of something happening become much more likely because, we, as we all know, football is generally – there's not long plays. They're over pretty quick. But to actually make the play and get the tackle and stop it and it not get called, you – and I will tell you, some of the players thought the play was over at that point, and they wow. were they were of the mindset, whoa, 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 why is this still going on? It should be in that split second, you know, where you're not playing to the whistle like, you know, that coaches speak stuff. It just it, – it, it came back to bite them. But, again, there were plenty of opportunities. They, they stopped the play. They won the game. And the officiating in the league just – the conference just let them down. That's my take on it. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to have, like, those conspiracy theories about that, like, oh, the refs just, like, would rather have had Miami win, and it's always difficult for me. Like, there's a very there's a very fine line between just poor officiating and actual, like, the officiating favoring a team and, like, doing it on purpose. And, like, in 99% of cases, like, I, I think it's just officials make bad calls and they're human and they just are not like robots that are, that'll make every call. Right. But it's just, if you're a Duke fan, I'm trying to see it from your perspective. Like it's hard to think like a, a team with, with as much power as Miami and doing all that and getting the favor by the referees. Like that's there, hard not to go that, that route with your mind. Well, there were some controversial calls in that game. Thomas sir crossing the goal line before that, you know, he was such a clutch quarterback with the game on the line that really, I think changed a lot of the narrative about Cirque, the way that game ended. But AJ Wolf who came on said that the officials had to have some money on that game, which I, I love the honesty. I don't know if I believe that that level of it. I, I think Latina coach Latina's take is probably correct that the officials just did not think they were going to get out of that stadium unscathed if they reversed it. And, I, but I think it was, I'll just go ahead and say it. We can pop the explicit warning on here. It was chicken shit for the, the review, not to come back and say, Hey, you, you missed it. He was down. Game is over. Done. Duke won the game. I mean, it was just chicken shit. Yeah, and, that is exactly what it is. It's coward. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if if there was just some fear about the optics of taking the win away. I don't know. That would be my guess. It was just some sort of nominal or some sort of easy to explain kind of. Well, I mean, they scored the touchdown. Do we really want to do this? The optics would look bad if we took the win away. But I mean, you're there to do a job, and and you didn't do it. And here's the thing, like if think about like you're a very, very small select few people, like people who are this passionate about Duke football versus people who are passionate about Miami football. Like, I think they'd be, they'd rather people like you talk about it. However many years later versus the entire fan base of Miami talking about it. So I, I, I wonder if that was when, what went through their mind as well, but. Absolutely had to 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. had to. As Someone who doesn't have, any like favoritism towards either of those schools. I am totally 100% with you with your, your thoughts on that play. There are two plays that Duke fans will talk about forever. The end of the Miami game is one of them. And the 2019 jump pass is the other. So okay. terrible, but Hey, 
Dan, thanks a lot for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Uh, where can we find your podcast? Yeah, um, I'm on Apple, Spotify, basically Google, like anywhere that your podcasts, that podcast typically could be found. I'm there. It's Dan Siegel's show, Dan S-I-E-G-E-L show. It's just covers mostly the ACC, a little bit about the country's major storylines, but just all ACC sports from we spend most of our time on basketball and football, men's basketball and football, but we acknowledge everything that goes on in this conference because it's a conference with a lot of great athletes and a lot of successful teams in, with other, in Olympic sports. So I like to talk about that as well. There's baseball, super regionals going on right now. I'll talk about that in my next show that I'm recording in a couple of days. And that is also on, you can find me on Twitter where I tweet my thoughts pretty much daily. Dan Siegel show at Dan S I E G E L show. And you've been doing a lot of good work on the softball uh, teams of late, and I appreciate you doing that. It's uh, kept me up to date on a lot more than what I typically follow in regard to my ACC fandom. Uh, We appreciate, Dan, we appreciate you coming on. We look forward to many more good episodes and more great ACC coverage from you. As mentioned on Twitter, we have some other interviews lined up before we go back to the site exclusively for the football season. As you know, we may try to do a couple of bonus episodes. We'll probably do a couple of jam sessions. You know where to find us at Duke FB Coverage, BullCityCoordinators.com, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Go Duke!